Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hi, everyone. My name is Dev Raga. This is My Melanie Money Professional, and welcome to part two of an interview with Dr. Tony Chen. In part one, we discussed about Tony, what his career is. Uh, We went into what it means to be a radiologist, private versus public. We talked about um, income, and we also talked about his investing philosophy and also his childhood. In this episode, I really want to pick Tony's brain about his travel hacks because he's part and founder of uh, Frequent Flying Doctors, which is basically a travel group for medical professionals. So, Tony, are you ready to get started for part two? Yeah, let's do it. Okay, let's get started. Now, if you have a specific question or specific comment, don't hesitate to contact me via Twitter or on Facebook. And remember the three main aims of this channel, education, empowerment, and entertainment. Now, we have Dr. Tony Chen, who's an avid traveler. So, now, Tony, it's fair to say, a lot of fans of your Facebook group who listen to my channel, you travel very, very well. Now, mostly in terms of air travel, dare I say, most of the time, you're traveling either business class or first class. Is that right? And that includes when you travel by yourself, and that includes when you travel with your family. Would that be a fair sort of statement to make? Uh, no, actually, but keep it, keep going. Let's, uh, let's dive in and, uh, we'll get right. the, to the real dirt. <laughs> so, so, so I'm, I'm sort of getting my information from, from all the photos that you post up on, on Facebook. Cause I, I don't think, I don't think I've seen you travel economy class that you've posted at all very much. I think maybe once I think you traveled Jetstar which if, if I remember right, I actually commented, I almost fell off my chair when I saw that post. But mostly it seems to be in the business and first class. And also with hotels, I mean, most of the time, the hotels and you have this sort of unique rating standard for your hotels are pretty upmarket. And I guess, I mean, do you do that because you make sort of review income out of it? Or is it just something that you've always gotten into? I mean, how did you get into traveling? It, it seems a far-fetched from the way that you were brought up as a child, it's it's almost like a two separate worlds in your life. I wish I made money from my uh, my travels. It'd be good if I can figure out how to monetize the the group. I just don't know. I mean, uh, potentially there's some way to monetize it, but I don't think it's going to be enough money to essentially sell out and lose the trust of the group. So I rather just I think we discuss this with other admins. We're trying to make the group fun and educational and you know easygoing. So we had had companies that done some sponsorships for photo competitions and there were some giveaways, and that's pretty much the extent of it. We all make good money. I don't think we really need this group to make us money. So this is definitely more for fun and you know information sharing. If in the future something does come up, you know, I'll definitely tell you all about it. But at the moment, no, we haven't made any money from the group. It's, I've sunk in thousands of hours into it um, with no monetary return. <laughs> but, but I love it. It's fun. 
it's um I love writing about my travels some, some sometimes like crazy travel stories you know I love seeing the people's responses and now I'm getting a little bit of infamy or I don't know a little bit more well known outside of the group some I do see I do see a lot of people who uh, come up to me just randomly um, it's very rare now that I go onto an airport and not someone not come up to me so that's quite fun like a minor a very minor Z Z grade celebrity kind of situation, which is fun. And most of the time, they they recognise my daughter Ruby, uh, or or our baby, because uh, they're much more famous than me and better looking as well. So um, generally, that's they want to say hi to them, and um, so that's that's been quite fun to be recognised. But de- yeah, no no financial uh, benefits just yet, but we'll keep you posted. Okay, so I think. What I want to say is, and this applies to me as well, don't get tricked by social media. <laughs> you know, I look go to social media, I go on Instagram or Facebook or LinkedIn, and oh my God, everyone is traveling to Europe on first class and staying at five-star hotels. On LinkedIn, every second person is the CFO of some company and starting multi-billion dollar unicorn companies, you know. And that's just social media. And that's literally what I post. I'm not going to post I'm stuck in the economy for 17 hours <laughs> with a crying baby on my lap. I mean, I do. I have posted about that. It's fun. We can't be posting about that every time. That's, that's just not, that's not what people do. You post the things that are interesting, that are, are rare, because not often people go fly first class or stay at interesting unusual hotels or fancy hotels because that's interesting to read and it's fun to look at it's pretty pictures and that's again with all of social media i i go and look at these things and i feel fomo and i presume people look at my social media account and I'm like oh my god tony is always traveling for his class and business class and always doing some fancy stuff whilst it's true they do do a lot of that that's definitely not the majority i would say 80 percent of my travels are very down to earth and the rest is fancy. And you, you need that. You can't just have fancy stuff all the time. That, there's no comparison otherwise, right? If you're eating caviar every day, that's just normal food, right? So you need that comparison to actually bring you down to earth and just make things more interesting. So, yeah, for us, uh, I think it appears like I fly fancy a lot. That's just because I, I travel a lot full stop. So early on when we were talking about, so I think it was the last episode when we were talking about the my job situation. So one thing I did do is negotiate a huge amount of leave. So in the private system, there is a bit more leeway into negotiating your um, uh, contract. And for me, I'm always of the opinion that time is more important than money and money is a means to exchange for time. So if I'm investing now, that is because I want to exchange that money in the future for more time. But why don't I just exchange that money for more time now? So if it's possible, I, when I was negotiating, negotiating my salaries, I said, look, just take what is the maximum number of leave you can give me and just take that money off. I don't need that extra money. Radiologists already earn a lot of money anyway. And whatever money I make, it will be taxed at 50%. But my extra time won't be taxed. My extra time, it will be fantastic. I get to spend time with my family, my friends, and travel. That extra money 
is not, let's say that I make an extra $50,000, that's not going to make as much difference to me as, let's say, a couple, of to- a couple of weeks or how many weeks of more leave. So I always take the time over money, which is how I reached in my current situation where I'm, you know, I've got three or four months of leave each year. And so I travel a lot. Last year was nuts. So we traveled pretty much every second week. Pretty much every weekend we did a little trip and we, we flew a lot. I think it was 80 flights um, um, for the family. So that was too much. That was a bit nuts. Well, there was a leftovers from you know COVID where we just, I, I just went crazy. I just booked and booked and booked. So this year was a bit lighter, but still pretty busy. So because I, I travel so much, because I have so much leave, a small percentage of that is fancy holidays, but I only post that. Everything else I don't post because it's boring. Um, so, I mean, if there's something interesting that comes up, I will, I will write about it. But like you said, uh, you, you only see the, the high-end stuff and social media is not real. That's not real life. And I always try to pinch myself and remind myself of that. You know, this is, this is where you get that toxicity from and where people get FOMO. It's just not real. And even when I'm looking back at my own social media posts, I'm like, holy cow, I live an amazing life, but it's distilled, right? It's like two or three years of good stuff distilled down to like three pages. Obviously, everyone's going to look like they had an amazing life, but, you know, that's just how it is. But, yeah, so when I go on hotels, I usually stay one nice hotel to maybe two or three normal hotels. So I I sort of mix it up. So on, let's say, a three-week holiday, I probably have five hotels that are really, really fancy, and everything else is normal. So I mix it up. So I got something to look forward to every few days. But I travel fast. So every I don't usually stay at one hotel more than a day, maybe two days. So I can switch up that hotels very quickly. So same with um, same with flying. So if I'm flying to Europe, uh, I try to do as much business class with points or cheap airfares as I can. But generally, I don't need to. So... We, let's say we fly to Singapore on economy and then I'll fly from uh, Singapore to Europe in business class or something. So just to spread that out so we don't have to pay for the entire cost. But yeah, just on social media, it looks like it's crazy. So that, that's, that's interesting. And I think, I think uh, very well said and a very interesting point. I think a lot of listeners would be quite surprised by that. Uh, two, two surprises that I gleaned. One is how many travel that you do. I mean, 80 flights last year is, is ridiculous. And, you know, that's amazing. Um, 12 to 16 week annual leave negotiation, that's a master move. And also the fact that you, you know, quite openly admit that you don't always travel first class because as it looks like on social media, you do. And to be honest, between you and me, I've had quite a few listeners who actually contacted me on Facebook. Who I don't know who these people are uh, that are doctors and say, who is this Tony guy who keeps constantly traveling like every other week is posting photos of five-star hotels, seven-star hotels and business class and first class. Quite a few people have actually, you know, contacted me saying, how does he do that? I mean, this guy must be a gazillionaire to be able to pay for all this. And, you know, a lot of listeners will be, you know, relatively surprised as I am that that is indeed not your whole story. I mean, you've always uh, been quite frank and open about it now that, um, you know, 20% of your travel is very, very high profile. Let me just expand on that. And um, so I just want to give you my travel philosophy and why I travel so much and why is it so important to me? And 
and this is very cliched. I am so, so sorry, listeners, if this is going to sound terribly cliched, but we'll, we'll quickly move on. I don't want to be that guy on the deathbed that said I work too much. You know, I wish, I wish I did more with my time. That is what I'm super paranoid about. And when I did those years of surgery, the surgeons, most of the surgeons, they, you know, they love their job, but they all wish they had more time. They all wish they traveled more. Traveling for a lot of people was just such an important part of their life. And for me, it is too. And, and I think I almost got this weird obsession with it. Well, first of all, I, I love traveling, obviously. But second of all, it's almost like I have to use this time. So I got this free time that I negotiated. I got this time that no one else has because that's my life philosophy. I want to exchange money for time. I have to use it and not just stay at home and do nothing. So that is something I have to kind of dial back a little bit because now I have families and young kids. I can't just be, you know, going out and gallivanting every moment I have. But that's kind of the um, background philosophy where I feel like I have to do this because I don't want to, don't have any regrets when I get older. Um, but I do get really bored very quickly. And part, and that's one of the reasons why I did radiology, where radiology is about rapid quick cases, you move on to the next thing. And so that is what my traveling is like. I usually only do one hotel each night and we go to, uh, we, you know, I went to Paris six times, six times I've been to Paris, but each time only one day. So I've been to Paris for six days, but I've been there six times. And what I like is I go to Paris and I have a few places I want to visit. And if I really enjoy somewhere, I'll come back. And if I don't, I just don't come back. So then I'm not sinking multiple days into it. So it's a very, very different and right. can be quite confronting for everyone else. So that's my philosophy even with my day-to-day life. Like we move house every year. So I have moved 38 times in my life and my wife as well. So I'm lucky that I met someone who's got somewhat similar philosophy in life to me. She's not as extreme but we are very mobile, so every year we've moved house, except for this year, actually, but every year we've moved house, um, not only because of training where you have to move house, but just I feel like moving house is almost like a bookend. Where, So if I think 2015, I know exactly where I am that year. Or 2012, I know where I am that year. And then when I move somewhere, I get to explore that area more intimately, and then I get bored and I move on to another area. So that's the reason I move house so much. I, I can see it becoming more and more difficult as the kids get older and more settling to school, but that's, the, that's what we've done. And that continues on to my travel philosophy where let's say if I do stay in a city for longer than one day, let's say Rome, I don't stay in the same hotel because I don't like commuting. I don't like moving around. So I stay, um, let's say I want to go visit the Vatican. I will stay one night next to the Vatican so I don't have to walk very far to go there and then that evening I would explore that region and then next morning I check out and then move a kilometer to another area of Rome and explore that area intimately and then move again to another part of the city and explore that area intimately. So I'm not a big fan on day trips. I literally move my entire trip to a location and explore that area well. So I know that's very different to what a lot of people do where they have a base and then they move back and forth. I can't, I can't do that. I'd, I'd really dislike that. And ever since we had kids, that made even less sense. You've got, you've got kids, right? So, you know, like with kids, they've got toileting issues, like especially poo issues. Oh my God. So 
Now I have to be close by to a toilet, and the only toilet I know that's going to be definitely fine and clean and ready to go is my own hotel toilet. So that's why I don't do day trips. I just move to a location I want to visit, walk around, let's say a five to ten minute circumference radius of that hotel, and if any toileting issues come up, I run back. Or if there's a napping issue, they need to have a nap. I run back to the hotel because it's so close. So that's that's my philosophy. I'm very mobile, and we are light travelers, carry on only. So I have a backpack. My personal carry on is about three to four kilos. So that's everything I carry, and then half of that bag is for my toddler. So that's seven kilos all up. My wife would have a seven kilo bag herself. And then usually my my、um, five year old will have her own little backpack, maybe a couple of kilos. So all together, we're carrying no more than two and a half backpacks. All together, eighteen kilos. And then we have a travel pram, which folds up into the、um, overhead compartment, and also has a tiny little stool that the toddler sits on. So that travel pram fits two people. And then we have a travel、uh, cot, which also is carry on as well. If if we need the cot, usually we don't even bring the cot. So it's all. Like fits in with my lifestyle. Everything is quick. I travel light. I live light. I move quickly. I explore an area within a short circumference, and I don't do day trips. And this is the reason I live always live next to the hospital I work at. I don't like commuting, so I just live. I move to a different hospital. I just find a place within five minutes walk or something like that, so I don't have to, you know, don't have to commute. And that's the same philosophy of traveling. So when Tony travels with what all up, maybe not even fifteen kilos of luggage for a family of four, I think it is,、um, traveling business class, where each passenger has up to forty kilos of of、uh, luggage that they can take, it must be some surprise looks on the check in counter people、uh, when you just rock up with literally nothing. Now, frequent flyer points. Now, I'm really bad at this.、Um, it's something that I'm. I'm learning as I'm traveling more and more. We've sort of promised ourselves three to five holidays a year. It's a bit of a minefield, and so many restrictions on it. It's a bit like credit card points, I suppose. And so I'm a member of Chris Flyer, which is Singapore Airlines,、uh, Qantas, One World, and also Velocity. What do you like? You mentioned about you using points to travel or upgrade, etc. Is that your sort of Main way that you tend to travel, or do you just pay for everything out of your own pocket?、Uh, so prior to COVID, which is also prior to kids, it was mainly points. I mean, I, I was on a consultant wage back then; it was just a rich try wage. And、um, like many people, I would do、uh, credit card churning. So what credit card churning is for those who are unaware is you you sign up for a credit card that has a lot of bonus points, and there's quite a few of them around. So let's say an Amex card that gives you a hundred thousand bonus points.、Um, you sign it up. You meet its、uh, minimum spending requirement, usually three to five thousand dollars within three months. And once you hit that, once you hit that amount, the bank will give you the hundred thousand points, let's say, and then you cancel the card, and then you move on to the X card. So every year you can churn a few cards like that, and you know you can get. A few hundred thousand points that way, and if it's two of you, you get easily get up to a million. And you know, if you're only traveling two or three times a year, that should be enough for you to travel to most places you need to. So that's how I did it back then, and、um, we had quite a bit of 
uh, Qantas points. I mean, I used uh, yeah, Virgin Velocity points and some Chris Fire. So whatever points I can get my hands on to try and book. It was definitely a lot easier to book prior to COVID. Seemed a bit more flexibility and availability. And um, back then it was either just myself or there was two of us. It was a lot easier to get limited number of seats because, you know, getting one seat is so much easier than currently I need to get four seats, which is impossible. So <laughs> I barely use any point redemption anymore. So um, for those who are unfamiliar, once you get your frequent flyer points, you try and get these things called um, award points or reward points. Um, essentially, each flight has a certain number of business class. Well, it doesn't have to be business class, just business class economy, first class seats that um, they will discount for frequent flyers. Uh, so instead of costing you know, half a million points for a first class flight, they will discount that to maybe down to 90,000 points as a award or reward point. And these are the seats that you're trying to get. But obviously everyone is trying to get those points. So often if you're going to somewhere quite um, popular, let's say LA or London, you need to book a year in advance. And if you don't have, let's say you're with the Qantas and you don't have status, that makes it very difficult. So these um, seats come out earlier for higher status members, like platform, et cetera. So if you're just a lowly, you know, lower tier member, you're really not going to get those popular routes. So one thing I used to do back in the day is, and I still do this, is I make myself to, um, I fly myself to Singapore or KL or Bali, most often Singapore. And then I will try and redeem a flight from Singapore. So that is a lot easier to redeem than a direct flight from Australia. So I will do Singapore to, let's say, Milan. And then that's, it's just got more, more variety. So it's more, um, more flexibility and more seats from that aspect. So in the same token, I still do the, do this, um, without using points because Australians, we're rich and everyone knows it. And we're quite, we spend a lot of money on travel. So we essentially pay an Australian tax. So to fly, it's, it's a lot more expensive to fly from Australia to Europe than it is for a European to come to Australia. And let's say if you're flying to Europe on business class, it probably costs you like $8,000 these days. But if you're flying to Europe from Singapore, it only costs you $4,000. But Singapore isn't halfway. Singapore is most of the, like Singapore is still quite far away from Europe. So what I do is I will fly to Singapore in economy for only you know, seven or $800 or something, and then buy that ticket in business to fly to Europe because that you skip the Australian tax because it's so much cheaper to fly from Singapore. Also, there's so many more airlines flying to Singapore that there's more competition and you just get reduced cost. So yes, I do, you know, you do do a little bit of economy and you do need a bit of flexibility with this as well. Usually I stay a couple of nights in Singapore to enjoy the hawker centers and, you know, have a good time at the hotel pools. Uh, but that saves me thousands of tens of thousands of dollars for four people on business class if I just forego that first leg. Um, but yeah, look, uh, points for me. Uh, I'm sorry, I'm not going to give you a lot of detail because I have almost given up on it because it's just so hard to get other than some domestic flights that I can do with points. Um, I find the international redemption really, really difficult, especially for four people. 
Um, but those who were with just one or two people, um, go check out Jonathan Mortimer's um, notes on um, Frequent Flying Doctors. There's other websites, lots of uh, lots and lots of um, uh, resources like Point Hacks, which I'm not affiliated with, but I read all the time. So they do a lot of quite in-depth um, details on how to redeem and how to collect points. This is all fairly common knowledge i think point the points game is fairly easy to learn but hard to implement just because the lack of availability especially post-covid but good luck to you um it's fun if you can get it it's just um, i think i'm out of the game now i've just got too many kids it's um it's quite complex and and i only found out that there's actually when you have frequent i mean people talk about frequent flyer points there's actually two types right there's the actual frequent flyer points then you've got the status credits and I only found out about that extra layer of stuff. Okay, well, this is a thing that a status credit entitles you to. I, I traveled to Amsterdam for a conference. Uh, yeah, it was $11,500 of our Singapore Airlines business class. And uh, I'm just looking on Emirates, for example, right now. It's about ten grand to travel business class. So extremely expensive if you're going to spend your own money. Now, we'll just take a quick break. And when we come back, we'll finish off this interview. I just want to pick Tony's brain about hotel stays and any particular sort of partners that he has that he recommends, uh, hotel partners. And also a controversial question that I ask all guests now, uh, public versus private school. And uh, we'll finish up with some last minute tips. We'll be right back after this break. If you're after personal financial advice, don't get it from a podcast. If you would like help based on your own personal situation, head over to sortyourmoneyout.com. Click get help and we'd be happy to introduce you to one of our trusted advisors. Our panel of advisors, mortgage brokers and accountants work with clients all over Australia so they can connect with you wherever you are. That's sortyourmoneyout.com and click get help. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Okay, welcome back. We're with Dr. Tony Chen, consultant radiologist. This is part two of an interview with Dr. Tony Chen. Um, now, Tony, I want to pick your brain about hotel stays. Is there some key questions that you would always ask when you stay at a hotel? For example, early check-in uh, or late check-out? Is that just a given because you're Tony and I'm not? Or how do you wing those if you do? And any particular hotel chains that you have found that are significantly premium compared to other chains? For example, the Marriott Group. Uh, Hilton Group, IHG, for example. Just curious about those two questions. Uh, so I love hotels. So uh, <laughs> unreasonably so. 
I think it's because I wanted to be an architect and hotels, especially really nice ones, often are set in beautiful buildings and the rooms are beautiful and I just love how they design things and it's like a public building that you get to live in. So, you know, you don't have to have your own mansion. You just go stay in a nice hotel for a few hundred dollars. So to me, um, a lot of people don't see the value in that because it's just somewhere to sleep. But for me, the hotel is as much the holiday and the experience as everything else. If I stay in a nice hotel, I don't really even need to leave um, because I'm admiring all the little details. And there are lots of little details, especially the really high-end ones. And we're not just talking about the building, but like, you know, even the artwork and the fixtures and things like that, that most people would just ignore, but it's really, it turns me on. It's it's amazing, but I'm sorry, it's just going to be very unusual for most of you. It's very exciting for me. I think it's just my um my childhood dream to be an architect has sort of filtered down to my love for hotels and nice buildings. So... I am shameless. Uh, I used to be anyway. So I used to pester. And you shouldn't do this, by the way. I, I stopped doing this now. But for many years, I was quite, I'll say very annoying to the front desk people. Not rude. Definitely, you never want to be rude. But I would ask for an upgrade, which is the first thing I would ask. And it's, it's very important to know your enemy, in this case, the hotel. And know what kind of upgrade you're gunning for. So generally, I always book a base room. And the base room is going to be the cheapest. And usually, it doesn't have a view. It's going to be small. It's going to be a little bit dingy. And then I would study their website to see what room would be in the realm of possibility for upgrade. Usually, one level upgrade is fairly straightforward if it's not booked out. Um, that's easy, usually. They give you that for free anyway. I usually want to upgrade to a suite and I, back in the day, man, I did a lot of pestering. So as soon as we enter, <laughs> my wife would know I would go and do my thing. And she would have to hide because she gets too embarrassed that I'm sitting there trying, trying to get a little upgrade. And she just can't, she can't deal with it. So she has to leave. And I really had no shame. I was just, I would just ask him, like, can we have an upgrade? And if it's anywhere close to an important date, Let's say it's it's within a month of my uh, anniversary. I say this is a special occasion for anniversary. I want to make sure, you know, kind of have a great time with my wife. This is really important. Or if it's anywhere close to my birthday or anything, and, and any date is usually important, close to something, you know, I'll try and squeeze out as much as I can from that. And the fancier the hotel, the less likely they are to say no. And most often they don't actually refuse. So upgrading one or two levels is not too hard. Let's say from like a base room to a deluxe room or prestige room. They're just words that don't really mean anything. Honestly, usually it just means like a couple floors up so you get a slightly better view. But you really want to get into the junior suites and the suites and that's just the bigger room and, you know, a living space. Honestly, if you're traveling just by yourself or with a wife or a, or a husband or a partner, it makes no difference, right? It makes not much of a difference. But for me, it was more of a game. Like, I really want to see the room just for interest's sake. And it's just, I want to see if I could get an upgrade. Um, recently, I found that it was hard and harder to get an upgrade, especially since um, COVID. And pretty much most hotels just have, uh, you know, if you want an upgrade, you pay a certain amount of money. Despite that, you can negotiate that money. So last time I stayed at Crown, 
Was it Crown or Langham? I can't remember. And they asked for $800 for an upgrade to the suite. I said, I'll pay you $100. And then they said, 150 And I said, deal. So you can haggle, which is, you know, sometimes you can't. But most of the time you can. You can usually get a few hundred dollars off with the haggling. Because honestly, that number is just something they made up. They have a they have a sheet which, you know, they look at. But I think a lot of these hotels, they just take any money because, you know, they are... They're going to lose that money anyway. It's not like that room's going to be empty if it's an empty night. But um, I've left a lot of that behind me. Now with the kids, I have to book two rooms or I have to book a suite to fit everyone in. So generally I don't really you know, try and pester the front desk people. I, I really feel sorry for pestering those people. And uh, if any of you are listening now, I, am, uh, I apologize. I was a real jerk. <laughs> I was really wasting your time trying to get an upgrade um, but that's what I did and uh, quite often it was successful people were you know just trying to get rid of me I guess so upgrade with the most important thing and early check-in late check-out that's just random that's hard to predict because it really depends on their cleaning schedule like is the room cleaned do they have more people coming in the next day so that's something you can't really control and if you want to guarantee it you really need to be booking through special agencies so uh, two that I want to uh, point out would be Virtuoso. So Virtuoso is a special group of agents that can give you um, uh, perks. So perks like early check-in and late check-out. Again, not guaranteed, but they'll put that on the request. Um, but the biggest perks with Virtuoso would be $100 US of um, uh, hotel credit, which you can spend on pretty much anything usually. Um, breakfast in the morning. And if it's fancy hotel, these breakfasts can be worth a lot of money. And um, yeah, usually an upgrade as well. And if you're booking via Find Hotels and Resorts, which is a special website or a uh, relationship with the Amex Platinum Card, that will give you all of the virtuoso benefits, including a guaranteed 4 p.m. checkout, which is very important for me, especially if I do a staycation. So if I do a staycation on a Saturday for the weekend, I try and check in early in the morning, so then I have a full day on Saturday, and then I check out really late on Sunday, and then I have, essentially have a full day on Sunday. So one night hotel stay for vacation essentially gives me two full days at a hotel to you know relax by the pool or whatever. And also, if I have a late flight or a late exit in, out of that city when I'm overseas, 4 p.m. checkout is pretty great because then you're not just you know lugging your luggage around. Or if you, you if you do keep your luggage with the hotel, you're still out. You're still out not in the hotel room. And with young kids that have naps in the afternoon, that 4 p.m. checkout is pretty important. So yeah, Virtuoso, Amex Platinum, um, fine hotels and resorts, really great for that extra perks and they're guaranteed perks. And most of the time, you're not paying extra for these perks. They're just included. But you have to book through a dedicated Virtuoso agent or alternatively, you book through an Amex Platinum uh, website. Um, so these are the things that I do. In terms of... Um, hotels, brands, um, I have my personal preferences and everyone is different. So for more lower end, look, when I say lower end, I apologize if I offend anyone, but <laughs> we're still talking about four or five star hotels. So they're still nice. Um, we're just not talking about the really fancy, fancy stuff. So for more lower end adequate hotels, I, I, I try and use a core. So things like Novotel, is quite good. Um, so Accor, I am a Accor Plus member. And Accor Plus membership 
I think it costs four hundred fifty or five hundred dollars, where it gives you an of course silver status immediately. It gives you one free night per year, and it gives you extreme, quite extreme discounts on their bookings at times. They're called red rooms, red room discounts. Um, but I didn't pay for the Core Plus membership. It comes free with an Amex card. I am not getting paid by Amex, but Amex, if you do like to pay me, please contact me. It's a great card. It, it does come with that Core Plus uh, membership, and I use the free nights. I book the very cheap deals. So if I go to Melbourne, sometimes I stay at um, the Movenpick Hotel, and the usual price will be two eighty a night. But I can book it one twenty a night on the Red Room sometimes. So that's a really good deal. And also, you get two free drinks when you enter with the Core Plus. And also, the Core Plus gives you fifty percent off on meals at their hotels. And there's quite a few ho- uh, Core Plus hotels around, so I think that's a great system. So that's kind of the lower end, mid end hotels. I use a Core. For the more fancy stuff, um, I'm I'm more into the Marriott Group. So Marriott Group, the two major brands I love staying at in the Marriott Group will be Ritz Carlton and St Regis. Find them to be very uh, they're very standardized, very high level service and luxury. Um, I always know what I'm getting, and I never really have a bad time. Like sometimes you can have an ordinary time, but I find Ritz Carlton, St Regis, you're not really gonna have a bad time, especially with St Regis, where everyone gets a butler as well. So it's it's not gonna not gonna be disappointing. Um, I also have a lot of Marriott points, and that's points I converted from uh, Amex points when they had a, a special, when they gave you 50% extra. So Mary points I found to be quite handy. So um, I'm going to Japan re- uh, soon, and the Ritz-Carlton in Kyoto is $2,800 a night. It's nuts. And if I use 50,000 Mary points, I can stay um, for, I think it's just over $600, which is still a lot of money. But 50,000 points isn't a huge amount of Marriott points. So that essentially saves me over $2,000 for that 50,000 Marriott points. And I think that's a very good um, exchange. So yeah, for the fancier stuff, I tend to use Marriott's, which is Ritz-Carlton and um, uh, St. Ridges for the more low-end stuff as a core. And I think you wrote a question here. I'm not sure if you're going to ask, but I'm going to answer it, I'm gonna answer it preemptively because I'm, I'm, I'm just going to move on to um, your next question, which you wrote for me. What is the, your best hotel experience that you've had? Um, so it's just following on from the Ritz-Carlton talk. There's a special type of Ritz-Carlton called Ritz-Carlton Reserve. They're not very common. And essentially, they're resorts. They're not going to be a city hotel. Ritz-Carlton Reserve is very, very fancy. And let's say in Bali, they have a normal Ritz-Carlton, and then they also have a Ritz-Carlton Reserve. And I went to the one in Bali, and it was just mind-blowing. I also went to the one in Karabi in uh, Thailand. And their bed, no joke, is twice the width of a normal king bed. So when you get up, you have to stand up and walk across the bed. It was that big. It it was utterly ridiculous. But I've only stayed at two of the Ritz-Carlton Reserves, and there was just... Uh, unbelievable hotels. There are these really, really special brands around the world that many people may not even have heard of. So the most famous one would have to be Amman, top tier. So S tier, essentially. So Amman, 
you know, these these properties you're looking at, even in the cheapest, like the, uh, probably Bali, the worst one in Bali would be over two thousand dollars a night. Most places will be five to ten thousand dollars a night for before base room. So these are like the best of the best. People who go and stay in Amman, they would swear, swear by it, and they would stay nowhere else because uh, it's the service apparently is extraordinary. I uh, had some booked for a big holiday I had planned, but uh, COVID messed it all up, and now the price is three times as much. So I think I've missed my chance, but we'll see how we go later on. Um, and there's other other groups like you know, Capella, which is based in Singapore. There's like Rosewood, which is more European. Like all these little more boutique brands that a lot of people have not really heard of, and they're like super high end. So. Like Ritz Carlton and Bridges, yeah, they're fancy, but then you got like another layer of even fancier high-end places, and then there's another layer above that, which is just for billionaires. There's these private islands that you can look into, but you know, I won't talk about that. Two, two hotels that, um, sorry, just just a quick quick one. Two hotels that, uh, one was in Murano, which is in northern uh, Italy, which is a part of Italy that used to be Austria. And um, it is part of a uh, hot springs town, and it's part of the hot spring hotel. And it had twenty five swimming pools. They had swimming pools on the roof. That w- that blew my mind. And what I didn't realize at the time, it was um, all inclusive. So they had all sorts of local cuisines that was all part of the deal. So we ate really well. Had buffets, and I had venison and truffle and local honey, and then all the while having cocktails, all included by the pools. That was amazing. And the last hotel I want to make mention is the Lake Palace in India. Um, so Lake Palace is in the town called Udapur. I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing it right. It is um, it is a lake town, and this hotel is on an island in the middle of the lake. And I'm pretty sure they filmed Octopussy, the James Bond movie classic, in that location. It's very romantic day and night it's a white building lit up at night and that's where i proposed so uh, before i went i uh messaged the butler to um organize this romantic uh candlelight dinner for us with five thousand candles and uh it only cost two hundred dollars to to book that dinner and then it was it was two degrees that night which i didn't realize india can even get that cold and it was absolutely freezing, and uh, it was so windy that the candles would get blown out as soon as they're lit. And they, we had a team of men just keep relighting all the candles that are blowing out, which essentially made our very romantic two-person dinner into like two of us and a bunch of random men lighting the candles the entire night. <laughs> so that was a very unusual experience. I came back to the room and surprised my wife with um, petal flower petals mating to the words uh, "Will you marry me?" So that was that was wow. nice, and that was definitely one of the best experiences. Fantastic! That's some great tips and uh, some very interesting stories. And it's interesting to learn that there's five star, and then there's more than five star, and then there's more than that, and then there's more than that, and um, so there's so many little things that, so many things that you know I, I haven't been exposed to. And likely it will never get exposed to it. Um, just a couple more short topics before we finish up. Uh, ask everyone this question, public versus private school. I'm just curious what your views are uh, given your upbringing and what your plans are for your kids if you want to share that. 
I'm just curious. Yeah, I actually made a post on this um, way back. I just stuck it up. I made a post on 31st of January 2021. Got 200 comments. No, 340 comments. And um, so I, I mean, I went to school in New Zealand, a uh, big chunk of it. My wife did her entire school in New Zealand. Um, in New Zealand, I think less than 5% of schools are public schools. So when we moved to Australia, and then I actually went straight into Melbourne High from New Zealand. And Melbourne High, for those who don't know, is a uh, selective school. So I had to do an exam to get in. But after I finished um, high school, I, I realized that so many people in med school were from private schools. I did not realize there were so many private schools in Australia, in, in Melbourne in particular. And I did not realize it was such a major topic of conversation and like where you went to school was such a big part of who you are. That wasn't something that I guess was as important when I was in New Zealand because we didn't really have that private public school divide or Catholic school. Um, in China, it wasn't a huge private school cohort either. So Australia is a bit unusual for us. And given that my wife and I both went to public schools and we kind of have a, I guess the word is, we think it's, it just feels a little bit unethical. And I mean, I totally understand why private schools exist. Um, it's just because we didn't grow up with it. It didn't feel quite right. Like it's like a education segregation. Didn't, didn't sit right with us. Um, so spoke to some friends, did some research, and you know the average school fee for private school, if you average it out currently, is probably thirty thousand dollars for if you average out the twelve years. So cheaper when you're early on, and then close to forty, fifty thousand dollars a year when you're in year twelve. So I think that I made some rough calculations. Is that if you started investing that money into the ASX, nothing fancy, just into an index fund from the first year of school when they're five, six years old. And then just kept the money in there until they're 35. You would have 4.9 million dollars at at the end. And by the time they're 40, you would have nine million dollars. And you can obviously stretch this out for as long as you can. And then you have more and more money. So my question is, if it was my kids, would they want a private school education, or would they want to go to a good local public school? And then when they're 40, I hand them nine million dollars. So. That's that's essentially, you know, the. I mean, it sounds very. It sounds like too hypothetical, but it is the choice, isn't it? Like, if you're not spending that money on the education, you will be spending it on some kind of investment. And I think um, at the time, the reasons why you would choose private school would be for academic performance, job prospects, and for future earnings. I mean, extracurricular activities, social contact, and obviously there's the prestige and FOMO. From the research, academic performance don't actually increase by all that much with private schools. I think on average, your outcome, both in terms of uh, the score that you get and also your economic education outcome, isn't so much dependent on where you went to school, what school you went to, but more on your family and your parents' socioeconomic um, level. So if you have smart, intelligent parents who are you know, well off, chances are you will stay in that same socioeconomic level. So there's not a lot of social mobility. 
And if you're rich, chances are you'll stay rich, and so on and so forth. So the school, once everything is standardized and said and done, it's probably don't make as much of a big difference as people think. And in terms of job prospects or future earnings, as I said, I don't think from research there's that big a difference. I'm not sure if that's what you read as well. Um, there's obviously going to be a huge difference in extracurricular activities um, just with the private schools around where I am in Geelong. The private schools tend to have so much more uh, infrastructure and immediately it's just uh, the public schools are not going to be able to compete. So I can understand how they can nurture talents more, you know, individualized, more tailored, um, which the public schools just probably don't have the resources for. Again, contacts and connections for private schools. In Geelong, we have Geelong Grammar, which is one of the most, I think it is the most expensive school in Australia. Uh, interesting enough, it's not particularly academic. Um, this, the enter scores are not particularly high, but I think these kids don't really need high enter scores maybe. Some of them might just have to get jobs with their family or you know they have... They make their connections within the school. So potentially that's a big part of going to private schools. And for me, who went to a selective school, there's a huge part of my schooling as well, where it's just who you went to school with. You know, the school made, the people have made a bigger difference than what the school is. And now, you know, I still have some long-term deep connections with the people I went to school with, and that's formed who I am. And obviously the last thing I mentioned was prestige and FOMO which um, honestly, it's starting to kick in for us, even though earlier I, I said that my wife and I weren't particularly interested in that uh, because of our personal circumstances that, you know, we didn't go to private schools, but everyone is talking about private schools. It's very, <laughs> and everyone I know who works with us, all the doctors go to private schools and it's starting with, I mean, I'm starting to feel a bit of FOMO. So in any case, we've put our kids' names down to all the private schools around the area, so we keep our options open. I think most likely we're going to do local public primary, and probably when they get a little bit older, um, the uh, the private school for you know, maybe four, five, six or older, and we'll see how they go. But yeah, despite all of our uh, moral objections, we have... Uh, <laughs> We have been converted to the dark side. So I can see, I, I mean, I went and visited some of those schools. They're, they're pretty impressive private schools. So I can see the definitely the, the enticement of these really nice infrastructure for sure. Hmm. That's an interesting thought. Look, um, yeah, it's, it's, it's always this thing, you're right. I think in medical school, there is a disproportionate number of students who get into medical school are from private school. Um, and there's also a significant proportion that get in from selective public schools like yourself. And then you've got um, standard non-selective public schools. So there's certainly a disproportionate number of students that get into medical school from private schools. Uh, I too, uh, I'm a product of a public education system in Adelaide, shout out to Adelaideans. And, uh, but my medical school was significant in terms of uh, private school. There was two main private schools in, in the state of Tasmania in, in Hobart, which uh, contributed a significant proportion of med students in my class. Now, what's interesting though, uh, is that some people don't have a choice because of where they live in Melbourne. Because if you want to get into a suburb that has a good public school, you've got to be spending 
a significant amount of money in terms of buying the home in that suburb. And rents in that suburb are actually quite significant as well. So as a result, they, they might see private school as a better option for them because you know, uh, they just can't afford to get into those suburbs. But it's 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 always an interesting topic and can be a quite a, a robust discussion online as well. Uh, and, and I'm part of multiple FIRE, Financial Independence Retire Early Facebook groups where they, they do that calculation that you just did about the opportunity costs of putting your kids in private school. That's about sort of 6 to $10 million during their lifetime. Now, Tony, that, that's all we have time for. So fascinating conversation um, in two parts of over two hours of talking about Dr. Tony Chen, his career, his life, his upbringing, his investing philosophy, superannuation philosophy, and and of course, uh, more pertinent to his travel hacks and, and some of the things about um, flying and, and also uh, hotels. Any sort of last words of wisdom that you want to impart on our listeners anything about yourself or something that you would encourage people to do? I think you touched on how you value your time more now than perhaps you did before and, and, and that's why you travel so much and, and you value your memories and your experiences a lot more than actual money to the extent that you've actually negotiated a 12 to 16-week annual leave in your contract. So you want to, anything, anything you want to say? Oh, Jay, put me on the spot. <laughs> Didn't prepare for this part. Look, I'm not, I'm not going to be pre- pretending to be you know, wise in my words, or, I mean, I'm still relatively young and this is all personal philosophies. So, um, everyone needs to make their own decisions on what they want to do with their time and what life is. But I made my decision quite early on, um, that I wanted a life that was flexible, uh, with my time and I wanted my time to be used to spend time with the people I love and doing the things that I like. So to me, that meant I had to get a high earning job that was flexible and radiology just came into that. So my personal goals, and I'm not sure if our listeners agree with this, and I'll just give you some, my own thoughts on life is that the number one thing is, I mean, other than happy family healthy family and all that stuff this is this is more personal is you got to be healthy and doing medicine and, and being a radiologist who's my my special subspecialty is nuclear medicine and i mainly do cancer imaging and just seeing young people my age getting cancer and dying from cancer and having horrible outcomes that's really made me uh, appreciate my health and i don't have super good immune system i always get sick when my kids get sick and when you're sick all you want to do is get better nothing else matters i don't really want to go travel i don't really want to do any activities i just want to be healthy so i think for everyone um life doesn't matter unless you have a for, you know at least a baseline of health healthiness and that health wealth is needs to be the most important and I'm saying this, and I'm quite hypocritical. I just, I need to eat better and exercise more, for sure. But um, I think I'm quite happy that I've realized that this is something that you know something I must do. And the second point I want to make is, I think a lot of people have this weird obsession of trying to be happy, and me too. I definitely want to be happy or content in life. But quite often, I mean, there are moments where I am happy where. 
know, if I go watch a show or TV show or I go out with my friends, there are moments where I actually become mindful that, hey, at this moment, I am quite happy and content, but that's not common. Quite often, you only realize you were happy in hindsight. You know, two years ago, hey, at that moment, I'm looking back at a photo, I, I was happy. And you don't realize it at the time. And I think that's a shame. But also, I think it's a shame that we, at least society has such a focus on happiness, or it kind of also makes it the chase of happiness is almost a double-edged sword. So, you know, as I mentioned earlier, where social media makes, as if my life, I'm traveling all the time and, you know, going to five-star hotels, that's that's the same with happiness. Everyone seems happy on social media. No one's going to post all the stuff that they're not, you know, they're not content with. And I think that perpetual chase of happiness can be misguided sometimes. And so for me, I think my life, I mean, I definitely want to be happy, and that's something that I realize in hindsight. But for me, my life is more about variety. I want sort of some form of excitement in my life, which is why I'm very mobile. I tend to, that's why I like traveling, seeing new things excite me, eating new things excite me. And I want my life to be interesting, and I want myself to be interesting. So I think that to me would give me happiness in hindsight, because searching for happiness is such an abstract term to me. So I think for me, it's it's more about living in an exciting, well, mildly exciting and interesting life and be interesting to other people. And the third thing is, and this is something I really want to do more, is all of this financial freedom and, you know, happiness and excitement doesn't mean anything without family and friends and contribution to your society and the community. So something I really like to do is feed people. So at work, I'm always buying people food because I just love feeding people. And that, the people's appreciation for me when I feed them, that gives me so much more joy than, you know, the extra money in my bank account or even going on a holiday. And I think that's something that I really want to cultivate. And I hope everyone listening would like to cultivate that as well as, you know, we are all living in a community and helping others and your friends and family. And so one thing I want to do uh, is go back to New Zealand and visit some of the sort of poorer schools that I went to and you know, organize some uh, scholarships for the for the kids there because I, I, they were such low socioeconomic schools and they, they shaped who I am. So that's something that I want to do in the next couple of years. So... Yeah, those are the three things. You know, I really want to form my my um, personal goals: be health, have health, wealth, um, live an exciting and interesting life, and give give your time, give money, give food, or give whatever you can to those around you and your community. I think that um, really is what really should motivate motivate us all. No worries. Now, well said. I think there's some valid, valid points, very key points, very important. And, you know, I, I too strongly believe in, um, you know, money is important, but money is not the most important thing in your life. And I always say, use it as a tool to make your life a bit better and the lives of people around you a lot better. So uh, thank you very much, uh, Dr. Tony Chen, for joining us for this two-part series and really appreciate your time and wisdom 
uh, and your thoughts on uh, life in general, philosophy, money, investing, superannuation and travel hacks. Now, that's all we have time for. So once again, thanks, Tony, for your time. And uh, if you want to leave a five-star review, please do so on any Apple podcasting platform or any of the platforms that you may be using or maybe leave it on all of the platforms. That's even better. And please leave a positive review because when you do that, it really does promote the episodes to other people. Uh, My name's Dev Raga. This is My Millennial Money Professional. And until next time, please make sure you stay safe. We acknowledge the Awabakal people, traditional custodians of the land on which our studio sits, and pay respects to their elders past, present, and emerging. We extend that respect to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples who may listen to our podcast. This podcast is for education and entertainment purposes. Any advice is general financial advice only, which does not take into account your objectives, financial situation, or needs. Because of that, you should consider if the advice is appropriate to you and your needs before acting on the information. If you do choose to buy a financial product, read the product disclosure statement, target market determination, and obtain appropriate financial advice tailored to your needs. Simo Interactive Proprietary Limited, the publisher of the podcast, and Glenn James are authorized representatives of Money Sherpa Proprietary Limited, which holds financial services license 451289.